everyone, this is Pau. I'm here with Mo and I'm kicking off our intro because Mo is literally doing back and forth a pod astrology podcast episodes today. But we're both still very excited because we're actually kicking off our series on the planetary joys today. How are you doing, Mo? Oh my god. Like so for one, I'm really glad that we decided to do this after mercury you know cleared its shadow and did all of its things because that mercury retrograde like so even though it ended in capricorn again like because it's stationed square to uranus it was still really annoying because there was so much just tech not working tech not working and just being problematic and so like funny story i actually had like an experiment i was doing and i think part of the way through uh the computer crashed so it stopped recording the <sighs> mouse behavior and i had to redo the whole thing again and of course like i wasn't thinking i was like i'm just gonna do my experiment on a sunday big deal when i also have a reading and of course like i chose the freaking weekend mercury was stationary like ugh. I don't, I don't, this is why you need to elect things sometimes yeah. and just think about the astro weather because you might save yourself from, you know, having to do stupid things all over. Yeah. Right. I, I, I do, I do think, you know, when you can do it, electing is awesome. Sometimes it's unavoidable. So I get that too. And I also just really don't want to scare people too much if it's just inevitable because. Mm -hmm. Because for me, this one, this one did have tech issues for sure, but it was just the overall, just the slowness of just every single process was just like, I, yeah, just as an example of something I couldn't avoid, like I had to sign a lease during this Mercury retrograde and it happened and I'm not like worried about it, but it was the slowest lease signing process I probably like ever dealt with, like everything just had some weird delay but it went through it's it was just annoying yeah um another thing is that like the venus mars conjunction and that full moon in <laughs> leo i mean i know everybody was like yeah like it's sexy it's fun and i mean i'm sure it was for people but it's just not giving that right now <laughs> I know. Not. Good good for the people who are getting the fun, sexy side of this transit because it, it was rough for me personally. And from what I was mostly seeing on Astro Twitter, I don't think it was very fun <laughs> or it's been very fun for very many mm, other people. No, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, I... I mean, it was that for me at times, but mostly no. <laughs> mostly no. And so just, I mean, seeing people like being more aggressive. I think a lot of us keep forgetting that both Mars and Venus are applying to Pluto, which is kind of like <laughs> exaggerating things. And, you know, I've seen, you know, all sorts of discourse about, um, you know, tact, decorum, how to talk about difficult events, things like that. Um, also just a lot of like, um, just attacks on, you know, people who, you know, um, identify with womanhood. Like I've seen a lot of discourse about 
um, you know, like whether trans women should be participating in sports and regulating who can and should be identifying as a woman or not, which I think is an unfortunate um, way that, you know, some of the astrology is playing out. And so, I mean, one thing that I've been thinking about the last couple of days, especially, is that we can talk about difficult things while also like trying to do things to support people who are going to be affected by these things. Because I mean, it's like, there's this weird thing where it's like, okay, we can't talk about things because it's difficult and insensitive, but you know, I think we can and should talk about these things. So like I saw the debate about astrologizing, you know, tragedy and things like that. And it's like, unfortunately, this is what astrology was designed to do. Like, I, mm-hmm. like, let's not mince words. Like, it's great that we can do all this psychological stuff with it. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, like, I agree that people should not be, you know, making predictions of doom and gloom just because, like, there's this honor that comes from being right. Like, but I mean, it does help to, like, think about the cycles of what's going on and like i'm thinking i know like obviously like people don't make decisions based on astrology necessarily but i'm also thinking about like from an electional maybe magical point of view and if you know you are somebody who is in a position to do some important organizing fundraising something for a cause like and you are you know aware of what's going on with the celestial bodies like why not use that knowledge and the actual skills and experience you have to organize to mitigate some of these effects like mm-hmm. that's not a bad thing right like right. i'm just saying right yeah i i do think this 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 discourse around like tact and what's proper to talk about and what's not is very very literally venus and mars and in saturn's realm too right like it's just so it's so fitting (laughs) yeah it is and i'm also thinking about the fact that they're going to go into aquarius what is it like next week um so yeah you had mentioned the conjunction um to pluto that happens on march 3rd and then they Mm, enter aquarius on march 6th they finally begin separating on march 10th oh jesus i can't wait like (sighs) the thing is like I guess I'm going to be really honest and say that, like, the people who are, like, hand... It's, like, I think it's more just thinking about the significations of this particular decan of Capricorn that everything is, like, moving through right now. There's almost this element of both follow the money, but also put your money where your mouth is. Bitching at people for doing X, Y, and Z is not going to help people who are suffering and honestly a lot of the people who are pearl clutching are just as much benefiting from outrage porn as like you know the people seeking clout for predicting doom and gloom it's like you're not doing this because you cared because honestly you didn't know about this or weren't even thinking about it until yesterday Mm -hmm. um and you getting on your platform with your however many thousand followers who are going to also be outraged. Like I've noticed that there's this culture of outrage that has been commodified and people get traffic and engagement and whatever off of that. And I think that, you know, that's something that we have to 
think about especially like i'm also i've also been thinking a lot about the transition that pluto is going to make into aquarius as well just because it has to do with the collective media and like impressions and things like that it's something we're gonna have to think about more you know I was a ba- I barely started the new astrology podcast episode on the forecast for March and um oh my god I feel bad for for blanking on the name of their guest um for that episode Oh Christopher he- Renstrom Oh yeah Christopher Renstrom thank you yeah, yeah he like very correctly pointed out that this is going to be the last time Mars conjoins Pluto while Pluto's in Capricorn mm-hmm. and so it, it, to him, it was like, oh, it's no surprise that both on the global level as well as like this stuff we're talking about on the interpersonal level, all this stuff is just kind of blowing up. Um, it really yeah. is this last hurrah from Mars, Pluto and Capricorn, this exalted Mars too. And um, it is going to be a really, really big dignity shift for especially Mars, but even for Venus when they enter Aquarius. Oh, God. Yeah. Like, I remember because I've been listening to our like this section of our uh, year ahead. And I remember saying, like, it's almost like there's some ability to, you know, fight for what's precious, fight for what's valuable, um, take a stand against, you know, some kind of perceived slight injustice, what have you, whether macro or you know, micro when, you know, both of these planets can join Pluto and, you know, Mars has the ability to look valiant, threatening, brave, all of those martial adjectives while they're trying to, I guess, save Venus, agitate Venus. It depends on like who you are and what's going on. But I've seen both of those things like in my personal life and just observing things be true. Um, And I've seen it also kind of play out as like a weird, like sort of Venus and Mars are trying to figure out what their relationship status is. There's some big blowout that happens with like the conjunction to Pluto and then they have to go to an arbitrator to settle it when they both go into Aquarius. And so that's just giving some food for thought. Yeah. Um, on a very personal level, I broke up with my partner right when that Venus-Mars conjunction was um, was starting to perfect right before Valentine's Day. And I had a whole, I mean, on elections, right? I had a whole election chart planned and it did not pan out. So the inception chart for actual breakup ended up being a Scorpio rising chart. So that made me Mars in Capricorn and it mm. makes him... Venus and Capricorn God. in the 10th house. Oh, no, not the 10th house. Sorry. The third. I, I, but still. The third. Yes. And oh my God. Like it's just been very, very literal for like we're going no contact for like a couple of months with the hopes of coming out of it, being friends. And we've both really been sticking to it. It gives me like the whole thing gives me this really weird like Orpheus and Eurydice vibe where we're both thinking we're and hoping we're heading in the right di- direction, but we have zero contact with each other. I mean, and then, then the conjun- upcoming conjunction with Pluto just feels so literal. And then on March 10th, as they start separating, like I'm leaving Hawaii on March 11th. Mm. So I'm going to be physically like moving away to New York yeah as they start separating it's just very uh. yeah it's weird because i i know a lot of scorpio risings and i have some taurus rising clients and i've been noticing like the theme whether it's like people breaking up people starting a relationship or people in a relationship just figuring out like 
are we gonna get more serious or not like that's been the theme and so like actually around that like leo full moon slash um what's it called no i think the moon was in virgo by that point but like the venus mars conjunction perfected like i think like two days after valentine's day or mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. i just remember like that whole weekend while venus like mars was overtaking venus like i got into a huge fight with somebody i really care about and it was like i don't know and like the thing is like we had a very very difficult conversation about like um yes these are the feelings i've been like carrying around and it's like i still you know have these feelings towards you but like sometimes when you're upset you exhibit these behaviors that make me not like you or like sometimes you do things and it like makes me feel this way and it was hard because it's like I wish I was like looking at like the actual like chart for like the um, conversation, but I'm pretty sure it was like the progression from Libra rising to Scorpio rising when all of this crap was happening. And so, I mean, it got worked out in the end, which is probably because we're both night chart people and, you know, Mars and Venus like us. Yes. (laughs) Thank God. (laughs) Yeah. Like it was a lot. (laughs) I, you know, when you were saying earlier, like this transition for Venus and Mars into Aquarius will be kind of like you're going to an arbitrator and then it's like now hashing out. Like, I do think that's accurate. I do think, you know, for folks really going through it, like on a personal level that, that I, I really just see that period just being a lot of just processing potentially what had transpired. Um, yeah, it's just Aquarius. It's just like, oh my God, it's just going to be so just dry. <laughs> Um, yeah. And just not super fun for Mars and Venus. Like, especially both, not Mars, because Mars is Mars. literally coming off of that, like, high mm-hmm. of, like, I am so up here. Mm-hmm. Venus mm-hmm. is like, okay, like, I'm, I'm okay. But then Mars just literally gets knocked back down to reality, and Saturn has to, you know, rein them in. I mean, they were answering to Saturn anyway, but because, like, they weren't seeing saturn mars kind of just had this blank check to do whatever Mm -hmm. uh whoever Mm -hmm. mars is and whatever is getting checked pretty hard and like depending on how your venus mars conjunction and capricorn situation went venus could be trying to like calm mars down as she leads mars to saturn which is you know the consequence or venus is like trying to go tattle on mars to saturn about <laughs> all the shit that mars was doing while saturn was not looking um, oh boy yeah. yeah that's that story will continue to play out through march um i think aside from that i do um i think in terms of things to look forward to um in the astro weather i am i'm excited for mutable lunations after that Leo full moon um just lunations that are not in the nodes or the bendings and so we do for example have that new moon in Pisces on the second but right. it comes right but, before that conjunction with Pluto have, and here's the thing like what the good news is that literally I think a couple of days after that like on the fifth or something there's the Jupiter Kazemi in Pisces yes. That's going to feel pretty nice. Like people are going to feel like optimistic about whatever the hell it is they're feeling optimistic about. I mean, unfortunately, like when everything moves into Aquarius, like there's going to be some weird like 
compartmentalization between like the hardships you're trying to endure and all the optimism you're feeling in a particular area of your life so yeah yeah yes yes definitely anything else on the astral weather no i think we'll we can talk about it like you know another time whenever we do the next pod yeah um i think just quick on announcements we talked in the last episode that we really wanted to do a deccans wrap up and the reason why we are not doing it is because we did an episode with the astrology show that will air in april about the deccans that goes really in depth into how to use the deck what the deccans are again how to use them in your practice all that kind of stuff um i mean on technical difficulties we did record that during mercury retrograde and i had issues on my end with the audio so we'll see how that goes (laughs) yeah no i'm pretty excited about it because um you know there's so many applications of the decans you know beyond just like thinking about them symbolically you can use them for most applications of astrology whether mundane horary electional looking at your own solar returns, looking at your own chart, whatever. Um, But you know, also from a tarot perspective, and if you are an astro tarot ho like myself, like you're just mixing them together all the time. It just never stops. And so, you know, eventually when I do finally get around to working on my website, which I have, I just need to populate with content and I will be soft launching eventually. I did miss my election, which happened to coincide with um, the auspicious election for February for um, (laughs) Astropod. And I was like, yes, I nailed it. Um, I missed it, though. I think I used it for something else. I forget what I used it for. Um, But anyway, like, I will find another election. It's coming in March, probably. So stay tuned. Um, Other than that, like, as Pat was mentioning earlier, I'm really excited to get into the um, planetary joys because we can kind of kill two birds with one stone. We could talk about the houses, but also the planets and their significations. So do you want to segue into that or do you have any announcements? I have no announcements. Yeah, I'm okay with segueing into that, but yeah, let's, let's just jump into that. Like first, I guess you know, why we wanted to do this. I know for me, I, I felt like, I feel like the joys help, you know, increase our understanding of not just the planets that are joying in these houses, but the house meanings themselves. And we'll go more into this later in terms of just like, what are the planetary joys and the history um, of it, of them. Um, but like, for me, it's like, yes, it does absolutely help with like interpreting natal charts, but even bigger, I think it, it's helped me really just understand house meetings, triplicity, like preparing for this episode was like blowing my mind. Like I got really excited about yeah, this series. Yeah, me too. I, I like that you even brought up like the triplicity concept in itself, because um, I remember uh, when I recorded the elements episode with Kira for the earth signs, we did start with earth and we talked about one thing that came up in our discussion. I mean, if you haven't seen it yet, you should totally go check it out because it's great. Um, We talk about how the pivot or angle associated with the element earth is um, the IC. And so the two planets that joy in houses on either side are Venus and the moon. And so we talk a lot about that and how that informs like earth as a concept 
earth as the concept of mother, earth as the concept of woman, and how, um, you know, certain themes of patriarchy in Western culture, which does inform, you know, the astrology that we're practicing and mostly talk about on this podcast, have um, informed our relationship to the material. And so, like, that was um, really cool to think about. I think it's also interesting that, um, I mean, we'll get into this probably when we talk a bit about, like, the Mars episode um, later down the line, but how um, out of all of the, I guess, um, signs that, um, you know, the water signs get Mars, which is the planet that rejoices closest to the pivot it's associated with. And so, like... I know that they're they're actually competing triplicity lord schemes. So there's one scheme where Mars is the sole triplicity lord of the water signs, um, day and night, regardless. I mean, that triplicity scheme is useful, but mm-hmm. I mean, I do like the version that I tend to use, which is the Dorothean scheme. So it gives both Earth and water, Moon, Mars, Venus, just in different orders. So yeah. Got it. I, I do definitely want to talk about those pivots and triplicity because I, I I was actually like a little bit, as I was doing my research, like I knew that there was an association with the joys and triplicity, but I didn't realize just like how deep it was until I really started to research this. So I'm excited to talk more about that. But I guess just taking a step back, um, you know, to define like what what are the planetary joys? They're considered an accidental dignity. So in traditional astrology, you have essential dignity and then you have accidental dignity. So essential dignity is when a planet gets dignity by sign. So, um, you know, like when we say like a planet is like a domicile ruler, exaltation, triplicity, bound and decan, um, those are considered essential dignities. Whereas accidental dignities is like the whole range of different things with planetary joy being one of them but it's a planet gaining dignity pretty much for anything else but sign but yet sign is still so tied with it mm. because you know you have sect you have um again yeah this house placement all that kind of stuff yeah like one way of thinking of essential dignity is um i remember with robert hand talking about triplicity and his um lecture on sect which i recommend if you can go buy it, it's like five hours, but it's great. It's great stuff. Um, and you can buy it on his website, Our Hat Media, I believe. I think it should still be there. But anyway, um, basically, essential dignity describes how well a planet can act in accordance to its nature. So is the planet being itself? Is it being true to itself? That's what the sign placement tells you. Um, and it tells you all about like how empowered a planet is to express that which is true to its nature whereas you know the axle accidental dignity um which you know sect is included in i remember in um that lecture rob hand talks about sect kind of actually describing whether planets are behaving constructively or not because um you know it's like a mars in say detriment for example is not true to its nature but because it's you know, in the sect in favor, it wants to behave in a constructive way. It wants to be good or not because um, its situation is like empowering it to do constructive things. And so if you look at solar phase, um, aspects to the moon, um, reception, um, its joy, but also its, um, you know, location in the chart, it can kind of say, okay, is the planet in power to do well or is it just going to cause problems? Mm-hmm. 
it's like empowerment by location or circumstance. It has nothing to do with identity. It has everything to do with location. Hmm. Yeah. I really like that. Um, I think all of, whether you're practicing natal, horary, electional, mundane, these are just all, you know, if you're a traditional astrologer anyway, these are just all the things that you have to like really, really consider when you're just looking at a planet's overall condition. And, um, you know, the accidental dignity, that said, is considered not as strong as essential dignity. But um, yeah, as I said, there, there's just going to be overlap. And I, I'm really excited to dive into the examples later on because I've yeah. uh, I found some really, I saw you too also found some like really, really good ones. But yeah. yeah. Um, so with planetary joy, then what we're talking about is like each planet has one house that it inherently just does best in. Um, and yeah. And then, so it's just like a question of like, well, how, how does, well, first of all, just even taking a step back, like how does house even just affect the planet's condition period? Um, one, I think one thing to consider is whether like a planet can see the ascendant and that's why there's just certain houses that are considered like quote unquote dark houses because they're an inversion to the ascendant. Um, and, and then also too, just the houses, just topics as well are just also Mm going to affect how that planet that role that planet's gonna be playing yeah um so another thing like adding on to this conversation i do want to note that like if you're into vedic astrology like myself um they do have a concept of planetary joy though their schemes are different and i think part of the reason that is is because if you think about western astrology and how it developed um there's a very specific mathematical relationship that you know the um hellenistic um, practitioners used when constructing like what is a good house or not so houses that are angular see um you know the ascendant by square opposition there's that light line of sight um and you know those aspects have um the nature of the two malefics whereas you know the sextile and the trine have like more of these favorable um, mathematical relationships to the ascendant, which have been given to um, the nature of the benefics. Um, The, you know, the houses that are sort of said to be in conjunct, whether that's, you know, um, the 30 degree aspect, which I can't remember what that's called aside from um, in conjunct, or um, I think it's this, it's not the semi-square, no. No, I don't. No, uh... there's there's another name for it. I just can't remember. But it's thirty degrees and quincunx, which is the one hundred fifty degrees, because they don't make that nice um, like geometrical shape. Um, like there's a numerology to it, basically. That again, Rob Hand explains in this lecture, and everything makes sense. So <laughs> there's a numerology to it that makes sense, and these um, aspects don't fit that sort of shape or pattern, and so. Um, these are said to be in aversion. And so, you know, the houses like the second, um, the um, 12th, the sixth, the eighth. So like, you can't see what's right next to you. I mean, the Vedics don't agree. Like they can, they have a different like configuration of aspects, but like, that's why um, we say that certain houses are more constructive or less constructive because of Mm -hmm. their relationship to, you know, the ascendant or the first whole sign house. Yeah, no, thank you for um, clarifying that because very much, I, I have not studied Vedic at all and very much for everything I'm going to say from here on out is like absolutely <laughs> like the Hellenistic traditional, um, a Hellenistic tradition. 
So with that, the planetary joys um, in this tradition is that Mercury joys in the first house, the moon joys in the third house, Venus joys in the fifth house, Mars joys in the sixth house, the sun joys in the ninth house, Jupiter joys in the 11th, and then lastly, Saturn joys in the 12th. And our plan for this series is we're going to go in that order. So we will be covering Mercury today. But I first want to, I'm excited to just kind of really just jump into like where the joys came from and just some of the history before we talk about Mercury. Yeah. Um, So a bulk of my sort, like, my main, like, my primary source material for, just, you know, what doing this episode was from a really, really good article that Chris Brennan had wrote. And it's it's, avail- it's available as a PDF um, online. You can really just Google Planetary Joys Hellenistic Astrology or mm-hmm. even Planetary Joys Chris Brennan, and it'll pop up. Um, but it is a Hellenistic um, astrology, like, technique or scheme, however you want to call it, that... Um, you know, Chris Brennan says that, you know, him and other astrologer, Benjamin Dykes, were having discussions about that kind of were just only very recently, I guess, just brought up um, again in like, you know, in this like new, I don't know how you call it, like, revival, I guess, of just like, mm-hmm. like in popularity of Hellenistic astrology. But what really stood out to me, like, I think one of my biggest takeaways from this article that I was surprised by was that. Um, the joy, the planetary joys came first and then the house meanings followed. Like, I guess even I didn't know that I I had thought that um, Mm -hmm. Hellenistic astrologers, you know, probably, you know, based from like other previous traditions, developed the house meanings for all 12 houses and then like decided, okay, which planets um, joy based on those house meanings. But it actually really seems like the evidence really, really points um, that, it was actually the joys <laughs> that were developed first and then the house meanings um, got some of their meaning from those joys. Yeah, I think it's interesting because if you think about it, um, you know, prior to, you know, this point, only the the pivots or the angles really had true meaning, you know, with the first house representing, you know, you, your body, your incarnation, um, the 10th house or like the the midheaven um, culminating had to do with like your ascent, like you being seen at the peak of your life, um, you know, the, the descendant having to do with like sort of the decline of your life, you know, you aging, becoming older, like becoming less visible. Um, and, you know, finally, you know, anti-culminating the IC, you returning to um, source or that which you came from. Um, and so, like, I think there's this element of, you know, that journey of the sun kind of informing, like, w- you know, what the angles mean. So, like, naturally, those points had significant meaning. However, um, you know, there are other points in the sky, you know, where, you know, the sun, but also at night when you can see the other um, wandering stars or planets, like, you know, there's sorts of relationships between those things. And I think that, um, as Pat was saying, the by assigning the planets to different joys, um, these houses were able to become more interesting and have definition as opposed Mm -hmm. to, um, just kind of relying solely on the pivots. Right. And I think on, I think it's, it's no shock then that other than Mercury, which we are discussing today, 
all the other planets joy in non-angular houses and so it just like as Mo was saying, like the angles, like there was already like a deep understanding of what those angles had meant, what their significations were. And just thinking about the planetary joys, it kind of helps us develop the understanding too of like, oh, well, what about these other houses that aren't angular? So I thought that was like pretty cool. Um, I thought it was, it, to me, it just seemed like, you know, we're, we're, you know how the Thema Mundi is a scheme mm-hmm. for understanding like domicile rulership as well as aspects. Mm-hmm. Um, the planetary joys, like I learned just reading this, is a scheme for just help understanding house meaning as well as um, how, like even like how the four elements got assigned to the signs in the first place. Like I think that's a lot of things people don't realize is not the, the, the four elements, you know, earth, fire, air, and water weren't always associated with the zodiac signs that they are yeah. and with triplicity too um like why the triplicity lords are even in that order like there's a there's the the joys possibly could provide a framework for even understanding like why the triplicity lords are set that way um the planets as well like assigned by sect like when you look at the planetary joys all of the day sect planets are in the northern part of the the chart they join the northern part of the chart whereas the night sect joys on the um southern half of the chart yeah, and that's important because of the connotations of the daytime um, and, you know, the heavens being associated with spirit, that which is permanent, that which is everlasting. Um, whereas, you know, everything, you know, below the horizon has to do with the body, things that are changeable, things that are, you know, imperfect because they're not, um, un- they're not this one unified um, cohesive thing. They're like a fragmented uh differential um sort of thing and so again it's like a weird way that you know the principles of sect are like embedded into this um planetary joys framework yes yes i think sect will we're talking about mercury today and i think it's gonna especially come up because it is like the one planet who is sect changes depending Mm -hmm. on whether they're rising in the morning or rising in the evening um, I, you know, first I haven't studied, I think triplicity as much as like you have, um, and you were just saying earlier that you follow the Dorothean scheme for triplicity, but, um, I don't know if you got to read this Chris Brennan article on the joys. Um, I've read it a few times, but mostly as a reference, not like ever, like fully in its entirety, but I have like engaged with it. I was curious how, what you thought about like his take on just um, the tri- on triplicity and the elements and how they're kind of grouped around, um, you know, these different kind of like angular triads and these like pivot points. Um, I personally really like it. Um, the only issue that I have is um, just kind of like the oppositions that they create. They just don't line up with how, you know, the oppositions are structured now because... Um, for example, the idea is that the Earth triplicity would be associated with the um, anti-culminating pivot, while the, um, you know, the midheaven um, or culminating pivot would be associated with fire because it's it's rising, right? It's like mm-hmm. the highest point in the sky. It's rising. Um, water would be the setting. Um, angle whereas you know the rising angle would be air because it starts to rise and i'm just thinking about um other conceptions of you know the triplicities from an elemental standpoint and how um we have this polarity between 
fire and air versus, you know, earth and water. Um, so it, I don't know where things, you know, evolved, but like just thinking about the angles and not thinking too deeply about the way that that opposition scheme works, mm-hmm. it does seem to track and it does seem to make sense that, um, you know, Mercury is associated with, you know, the air triplicity and, you know, air signs are often called, you know, uh, signs with voices, signs that talk, human signs. So mm-hmm. it makes sense that, um, you know, Mercury would be, you know, at the helm. Um, and if you listen to the most recent um, episode of the astrology podcast, I think it was the one on Hermetics, where they talk mm-hmm. about this duality of um, Mercury and this principle of being both of this world, but not in this world but not of it so like we are these souls that are intangible but like we're encased in a body and so we have to navigate like having a body within the rules of this changeable world while also having this sort of like intangible um and spiritual like or conscious whatever you want to call it um you know experience so it's like being both things at once. And I feel like that kind of speaks to um, the fact that if you think about the um, the ascendant and the descendant, they're the points that are both partially above and partially below the horizon. Um, so it's, it's interesting to think about because it's like you've got one foot in, one foot out. But mm. from the perspective of the ascendant, you're emerging from this like you know, the dark to like, I guess, become more of like this conscious, like, ensouled being, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, um, you know, what you were saying earlier, too, on the elemental oppositions, like, that debate's been raging for like, 1000s of years now. On the, okay, you know, like- <laughs> so I have a solution to this. I want to so hear it. If you think about the um, if you think about the qualities that got assigned to the elements, um, when you think about them both as, uh, in terms of different scales of, um, dryness and, um, heat, you could think of the, um, midheaven icy axis as being like a dry axis, but like differing in temperature. So when you're cold and dry, you're in the ground but when you're hot and dry you're like you know a gas particle floating in the atmosphere or something Mm -hmm. whereas you know moisture is like captured by that ascendant descendant axis so like the ability to um you know to like kind of flow with things whereas dryness is more about like having categories and distinctions i mean like you're defining yourself and your whole life by your roots, which is that I see, which is you're trying to distinguish yourself from others with the MC. Whereas, you know, you're trying to understand yourself through others, you know, to varying degrees with that, you know, ascendant, descendant axis. So like, there's something about like the qualities that make sense. It's just hard to articulate. And yeah, <laughs> no, I, it makes sense. What you were saying makes sense to me. <laughs> I, I don't know. I really liked it. I really liked just kind of like studying it because for me, it really like I thought it all clicked like 
just how the joys just fit so nicely with house significations, with triplicity, with sect. Um, and I'm, I'm stoked to just kind of go through each of these planets and talk more about it because I, we're going to be talking about Mercury and I'm, I'm ready to segue into it whenever. Oh, did you want to talk about the Hermetics real quick or did you want to talk about uh, No, no, no. That was my only point. Like okay. everybody literally go listen to it. Um, it's, it's like, you'll experience like galaxy brain, like, oh my God, like what's going on here? This is, this is great stuff. And so I think it's interesting, like thinking about Mercury as, um, you know, the planet that's been associated with astrology, the occult, um, having this relationship between the material and the immaterial, right. Um, being, you know, at the helm at the first house. And so. I think we should talk about, you know, Mercury's joy in the first house, but also just what Mercury tends to symbolize as a planet. Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm ready to jump into it then. So as you were saying, just to reiterate what you had already brought up, like Mercury is the only planet that joys in an angle. In this case, it's the first house. And if, you know, if the top of the chart is supposed to be the spirit, which is where the day sect planets are and then the bottom of the chart is the body mercury i guess is as happy as somewhere in between there you know just constantly just kind of being in flex as, as you had said um like, i just really like the way you articulated it we're all born we're all spirits born into this physical body that we like now have to navigate for the rest of our lives here on earth <laughs> yeah um, uh, no that makes a lot of sense and i think about the fact that, um, you know, certain elements of the first house have to do with, um, I know people like to say the first house is a mask. It's not, it's literally no. you like, no. <laughs> honestly, it's like the part of the chart that says the most about you, like, and you know, the planet that rules it says a lot about like what you're focused on and what your attention or like what certain elements of your life experience are is going to be like shaped by and so i think it's interesting that think of mercury's association with like games it's like you yeah. being it's like your avatar in this like if you want to go there with the um we're just living in a simulation um i guess idea of how the universe is working this is your um sim in this universe basically and i think it's very funny that you know <laughs> i'm thinking of like the duality piece and like again being in this world but not of it um as like you know you're trying to play a role find a role discover a role because there's something about like that experimentation that comes out with um mercury in general mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i um yeah, I I really I I would say like traditionally the first house is the only house that really fully one hundred percent like is you right and someone who practices electional and horary when the when you're the one asking like the question let's say or you're the one like electing um for some kind of event you are the ruler of the first house like there's just like almost no exceptions to that like you are going to be the ascendant ruler and then even in natal chart astrology i think that the other houses as well the rulers of the other houses could very easily be other people like the ruler of your seventh house being a partner whether it's a romantic or business partner 
or the you know like the the third house being like the ruler or the ruler of your third house being your literal siblings <laughs> um it's not like a lot of those houses could really be other people or events in your life but it really is the first house that is just so much you i i don't think it's a mask um yeah and like so i'm just like going through the show notes and i'm thinking about like the fact that whenever we think of you know the archetypes or the roles that um planets can play you know if you if you take like you know the sun as the monarch sun and moon as monarchs um metaphor you can just because of mercury's proximity to the sun like the sun is seen as the soul sorry for the people who think it's the moon it's the sun uh at least in western astro it's the sun the moon is like the body and things like that but you know mercury is the closest thing to the sun right which is like the monarch so the person who is closest to the monarch can receive the insight and intellect from the monarch and communicate it to other people and i think that you know putting mercury in this position as you know rejoicing in the first is us trying to find a way in this like weird um oh god i'm just going crazy with like the semi-metaverse like you know metaphors i'm coming up with here like, <laughs> you're in the metaverse and you're trying to wait to find the most useful way of delivering what your sort of intangible essence is in this um in this world right or in this realm or whatever you want to call it right and so i i don't know i, I just feel like that symbolism is very um loud mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i i agree and when you look at the what the first house was called in the hellenistic tradition it's translated to the helm like a helm of a ship um, other words I've seen before is like the handle of a rudder again, like ship <laughs> ship terminology, but even like the rings of a yoke for an ox. And so I just it's like maybe the modern equivalent of this would be like the steering wheel of a car and mm -hmm. Mercury very much as as a planet that joys in the first house. Um, yeah, really is, like you said, kind of just this on a like like messenger i guess like to like the monarch to the soul um and it's just really constantly just again trying to navigate between soul and body and the world all around us yeah i really like that you brought that up because it made me think of um there's like a mechanical thing to it it's like somebody's like steering it's like look at me i'm steering my meat suit or like you know i'm controlling my avatar so like i love how there's that like sort of connotation when we think about mercury's relationship to the first house mm -hmm. and there's also like sort of this like also just bringing up the the magical element of mercury and the sort of like tinkering playing around um kind of playful element of mercury even if like people are not always necessarily playful it's almost like certain elements of like our lives are experimenting and tweaking with like understanding ourselves and where we fit and so like there's this element of like creating sort of like an identity or persona or way of moving your meat suit through the world while you try to play you know like the game that is life and so yeah yeah the the trickster playful archetype of mercury um again very good example charts that i have of this but um 
it's just very very loud and just when you look for example even just read the stories about hermes or you know mercury in greco-roman mythology um you know like i i I, so alice sparkly cat's post-colonial astrology has like a really good good couple chapter chapters actually on mercury but um, one of the stories that they mention is a very famous story of like, like, you know, Mercury was born and literally on his first day of birth decided that he was going to play a trick on another god, Apollo, by stealing his cattle and hiding them somewhere. And then he denies it and he's constantly lying and saying, like, how could I have done this? I'm literally a baby. <laughs> There's no way I could do something like this. But I, I like that Alice um, Sparkly Cat had pointed out that everyone involved knew that Mercury was lying. Like Zeus didn't believe him. His mom didn't believe him. Apollo didn't believe him. No one believed him, but he got away with it. He got away with it. Um, in fact, he actually even really got rewarded by it. And one of the very interesting rewards, he got a few rewards, actually, but I think the one that really stood out the most to me was that Apollo gave him, or I don't think it's Apollo directly gave it to him, but like maybe another goddess gave it to him via Apollo, the mm. ability of divination. But he so he could divine the future but he has no idea whether what he's saying is truth or a lie <laughs> oh okay yeah <laughs> yeah no i think it's interesting because i think that also i don't know it's just giving just thinking of like mercury like ruling the first house i i know i'm just bringing in like some of the um garden of eden creation myth things it's like okay like you ate from the truth of knowledge and whatever, but you know, the punishment for like trying to know things and have this deep knowing of things that you're not really supposed to know because you're supposed to exist in, you know, ignorant bliss and just enjoy what has been provided for you. And I feel like there's some weird parallel with that. It's like, okay, you did something you shouldn't have. You tried to lie about it. And then (laughs) it's like, okay, you've been cast out and like it's like okay enjoy your like knowing but like what what is it going to get you what is having this knowledge or being able to see the future going to get you if like one you don't know if it's true and two if it is true like what can you do I I also like so po- you know post colonial astrology just really tries to you know acknowledge and break down the that the fact that if you're studying Western astrology it's very very much tied with colonialism imperialism white supremacy all of that so it's like how do we break it down and I do like that when they talk about Mercury um, yeah there are you'll hear you know you'll hear words associated with mercury around like being rational and logical and technology and it's it's not that those things aren't true but like just being mindful that um of the eurocentricism that gets associated with words like that that like somehow we have we're now in this world that for whatever reason like the rational and like being scientific and all that stuff is considered better than being emotional Mm -hmm. or illogical or irrational um but Mercury is Mercury is those things. Mercury is also magic, mystery, and esotericism. But 
I think what the book, that chapter really pointed out to me was that the rational logic, science, math, like objectivity is also magical and mysterious and esoteric. Like they're all, um, they're really not like super, like as separate as they are. And I think Mercury really helps us navigate those realms. I'm glad you brought that up because uh, I'm also thinking about like Mercury and its association with innovation, technology, exchange, and like trying to play around with things to figure out the true essence of things and I th I'm thinking about what you said earlier about being given the um the gift of foresight but not knowing if it's really true or not and I'm thinking about like the existential um crises that people might have when you realize like you know maybe this universe doesn't necessarily have a purpose what the hell am I doing here or like even how can we, you know, test the nature of reality, right? And like, even if we can simulate all of these like conditions for, you know, how evolution took place, you know, what certain elements of space are like, you know, until we can go and experience that, we don't really know it. And so mm -hmm. we could just be like making things up as we go. So mm -hmm. yeah, no, that's- But there's also, point. but there's also the- <laughs> The side of like we can like even hermeticism is really big on this right there's a lot of the esoteric arts of just like okay just because you're experiencing and this is what you think you're seeing on the surface like it may not also be the truth either which i think just makes me think so much about like yeah. that that hermes myth around divination <laughs> yeah no for sure 100 um, percent yeah i mean another thing is like so we're going to go into chart examples, but like, I just kind of want to um, read some general descriptions of Mercury, the planet, because I think as we go through each of these, you'll start to see that like, you know, Mercury, some of Mercury's like literal manifestations like show up in terms of how this person is or how they come across. Um, so um, this one is from, hold on, let me check the source again. It's uh, one of Porphyry's um, statements on <clears throat> the nature of Mercury. And so the star of Hermes is attached to Helios and therefore appears to bounce and be rarely visible. So this is just a comment on the fact that Mercury is constantly going retrograde. It goes retrograde mm -hmm. three times a year. Yes, um, usually in the same element yeah and so you know it's always constantly like venturing out and then like needing to be reeled back in and um you know constantly purified and reclarified and refined so like i think that's an interesting feature because out of all of the planets mercury goes retrograde the most frequent um and so it's funny how like in our attempts to engage with the world but also others like we're constantly needing to um, venture out and then come back to center and then like reimagine our sort of like way of dealing with mercurial matters depending on where it falls in our chart depending on what signs these retrogrades are happening in etc um, okay sorry I like kind of sidetracked no, and, no. Since, <laughs> and since <laughs> he is arranged to be always near the radiant crown of Helios and rises and sets very often under his beams and because he is situated beside the leading celestial body who governs the motion of the soul he governs intelligence reason understanding and whatever pertains to the use of articulated thinking and speaking 
education, trade, business, friendship, association, contracts, companionship, service, and also young persons, children, and descendants. He's called the Twinkling Star. And uh, Valens gives this really long ass description of Mercury, which I will not read the entire thing, <laughs> but I'll just read like all the sorts of um, professions that could be associated with. So Mercury indicates education, letters, disputation, reasoning, brotherhood, interpretation, embassies, number, accounts, geometry, markets, youth, games, theft, association, <laughs> communication, service, gain, Lisco services, obedience, sport, wrestling, declamation. You get the idea. You know what I mean? Um, you know, there's elements of, you know, being crafty and smart. Um, there's an element of being, you know, charming. Um, mm. There's also elements of, you know, being a devoted steward of, you know, occult scientists, occult sciences and things like that elements of having to do with design needing to pay careful attention to details so that you can whether it's you know delivering lines effectively while you're acting or like knowing what you know all these omens that you know your respective deity is trying to communicate with you or what have you like there's that sort of like ability to interface with lots of pieces of information or literal pieces of things and figure out how to deconstruct and reconstruct them in ways so that you can get some kind of outcome right yeah i'm glad you read all this out loud because i'm sure as people are listening there are significations that you mentioned that you know for people who know astrology they will easily associate mercury with like communication for example, but there were also things you mentioned on here that just make me think about it joining in the first house, like sport and wrestling. And I, I, you didn't read this one out loud, but I was like, my eyes are skimming through the text that like weightlifting, mm -hmm. like people who weightlift fall um, are, you know, fall under like Mercury's realm, which is very fascinating to me because people will, I think most people would initially think Mars would be, and I mean, there's obviously a martial element to it as well. But again, that just shows just like Mercury joys in the first house of body, body and soul. Uh, yeah, no, I also think about the facilitation of exchange. So, you know, elements of the mercantile, um, um, you know, the root of that word is related to Mercury, like merchants, people who are like, I guess seen as crafty and like knowing how to say things to people so that they can persuade them and convince them to buy something or convince them of the utility value, whatever of something. Right. So like, I also think there's like a craftsmanship as you start to get towards the end, like things that require, um, you know, lots of fine detail and um, there's just sort the sort of like detail oriented sort of um nature to mercury that i feel is slept on because it's like at least if you're not talking about virgo because <laughs> like don't get me wrong like virgo does have a lot of those um significations but i've met some gemini's who can be really neurotic like that oh yeah you know it's it's there it's totally there yeah absolutely <laughs> um I think I, I didn't put this in the notes, but I, I, I feel like I would be remiss not to mention it because we both love tarot and I'm sure a bunch of our listeners do too, especially mm -hmm. coming out of our Deccan series that 
yeah, you you even mentioned the Garden of Eden um, story, but the lovers is associated with Gemini, right? And then the hermits associated with Virgo, and then the magicians associated with the planet Mercury. And when I think of those three cards, like absolutely all those archetypes who are just like just the archetype we were just mentioning, like pops up absolutely in those cards. Um, and I could also see it in the first house, um, in particular, especially like the hermit, right? Of just like okay, like. Mm-hmm having that lantern kind of guide you through like the depths whether it's like a literal underworld or you know the things you gotta like still figure out in your soul (laughs) yeah for sure um one last thing i do want to mention is the you know the comedy element of mercury (laughs) like i think of like the fact that mimes is mentioned in here and also games and playing and you know there's certain elements of amusement that um come with mercury because there's like a cleverness you have to display when you are you know making a joke or you know designing some elaborate prank like you know like it takes time and careful effort oh my god i'm so excited to go over the examples because we do have some comedians as well as just like other folks who fit um these descriptors but I think, um, are you ready to jump into examples? Yeah. Um, what okay. I want to say is that for this episode, but also like all the episodes, so Pow and I kind of figured out that it would be wise to like kind of get like one or two examples from each of the signs to go through so that you can really see how um, having a planet in the sign of its joy does seem to confer some kind of advantage for people regardless of um you know essential dignity um yeah yeah um before we jump into one by one i want to say i don't know if you noticed any were able to go through all of them just kind of sense any general trends as you were prepping for this episode but i'll say one trend that was coming up with a lot of these folks is um issues coming up with just even their own truth and i i i would think that someone who has mercury in the first house is going to really really struggle with keeping secrets especially if they're controversial or detrimental secrets because it just kind of seemed like there were just a lot of themes coming up even even my examples of those truths coming out and really biting people in the ass yeah no uh one thing i noticed was also people who um were well received by people like because they could make things more palatable to people and um i guess meet people at a at a, at a level that they're at instead of um you know being pretentious if mm-hmm. that makes sense like there was mm-hmm. this element of being able to appeal to the common person and that mm-hmm. explaining sort of their elevation or their rise to um some kind of prominence for example yes i saw that too um the first example is one of mine so this is someone who has mercury in aries actually in the first decan just to loop back our decan series but this is major league baseball player pete rose so he was an all he still to this day is all-time leader in hits games played at bats i don't know anything about baseball i don't know what these terms mean but it's at bats singles and outs he won three world series three batting titles one mvp and he was pretty much like a shoe in for like this guy's gonna go in the hall of fame 
um, once he retires. He did retire in the 80s, um, but became a manager. And he played mostly for the Cincinnati Reds, which he also ended up managing. Mm-hmm. What happened <laughs> was um, in 1989, he was investigated for gambling on his own team, and they never ever found evidence whether he bet against his team, <laughs> but he he bet for his team. He initially denied it, but the truth came out, and the result was he was determined permanently ineligible, which ended his MLB career and his eligibility for Hall of Fame. Then he got prison time for tax evasion around not not his gambling around baseball but his horse gambling winnings um like he actually served some time in prison um his mercury is right on the south node it rules his third house and his sixth house and those what this is one theme that was coming out with all the people who were involved with controversy in my examples this one included um the 12th house and first house stuff was coming up a lot with perfections. And so the allegations for him started to come out in his 12th house Pisces year. And then he was in a first house Aries Mm. year when he was suspended and put on the permanent eligibility list, which activated that Mercury and Mars and Mercury were transiting in his sixth house Virgo when he was put on that ineligibility list. Yeah. You know what? Like another, so this will show up with one of my examples but like there was also the there were allegations made or like scandals that um you know the person was involved in but like there was some ambiguity around like like they they could never find like real or substantial proof and i mean the thing is it's not that like you know the person wasn't guilty it's just that something worked out <laughs> so that they weren't quite held accountable um it'll yes. make sense when i get when i get to that example i definitely um, have a few of those <laughs> too um do you want to just go down the zodiac or because like i know it'll just end it might end up with me doing a bunch of talking for a bit or do you want to kind of go back and forth what are you thinking uh, we can go back and forth like i don't mind reading some of your examples i mean okay. or you could do them like it, it's, <laughs> it's up to you um, i'll do this next one and then maybe the one for gemini we well, can oh for gemini through. so there are some examples because i saw you put something like i do have people so i could also <laughs> mention them like oh, in brief. yeah okay yeah and i think the gemini one you'll definitely be familiar with because like everyone is but let me just mm-hmm. do the taurus one so this is another art history one because you know i'm always gonna have an example but the art the painter gustave corbet has his mercury in um taurus in the third decade of taurus he also has mars and venus here i did notice a lot of um what do you call it stellium in my examples this round <laughs> but his mercury is exactly conjunct the ascendant so he was this mid 18th century painter he was a realist who um really rejected the mainstream art norms of the time and really kind of paved the way for impressionist and post-impressionist artists that we know now like monet and van gogh um even though he himself like most people won't really know who he is um one of his most famous paintings is called the origin of the world um if you do decide to Google this, just make sure this is very not safe for work. It's 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 female genitalia. 
and which makes sense, right? It's the origin of the world. And this painting was so controversial. He painted it in a 12th house perfection year for him. And it was not exhibited until 1988, like well over 100 years later, which would have actually been a first house year for him. (laughs) Oh, it's so funny. (laughs) But on, um, again, on troubles and controversy, he did have his own. He was an anarchist and a socialist. And during his fourth house Leo year, the French lost the Franco-Prussian War, and then this temporary, like, revolutionary government called the Paris Commune took over the city, and so he was like heavily involved in that. And I'm not going to go too much into it, but he went into he got into this whole fiasco around like um, getting rid of this column that was like supposed to represent like France's like military victories during the Napoleonic era. The column got turned down, torn down um, under his watch like and direction like he was in charge of tearing down this column all the while this like temporary government had taken over and then when the french government took power back they charged him for all of that stuff and he again he tried to really deny it and he really tried to play off like i was only involved with this commune like for a very very short time Um, and it was true it was kind of one of those things where it's like there really wasn't too much evidence but there did end up being evidence against him and what had happened was way before the revolution had even happened he had submitted a letter to the government suggesting the removal of that column. <laughs> so uh, this poor man ended up getting prison time. And the funny thing is his prison time happened in a fifth house year. So, and he was allowed to continue painting and he did some of his most famous works while in prison. Wow. Uh, was Did he have Saturn in the fifth house by any chance? You know, let me, I'll double check that real quick. He... That's interesting. Yeah, in terms of what other notes that I have his on his chart, he had um, Saturn would have been in Virgo, right? Hold on, let me like look this up real quick. Corbet, Corbet. Because if it is, that would be really funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, this is super annoying that his chart's not showing up on, and I just looked it up. Okay, there it is. Okay. He no, he did. Okay. He he actually really has no planets um, wow. down there. His Saturn though, his Saturn was in eleventh house Pisces. Um, gosh, I'm just Where's trying to think Mars? of like, oh, his Mars is in Taurus. Like so, yeah, he's got oh, wow. this like Taurus okay. stellium in that first house where his like Mercury is. is his Mercury in his close joy. or? No, his Mercury is like pretty far from Mars, but it's like okay. exactly conjoined his ascendant, and that Mercury also rules his fifth house, right? Mm, um, yeah, but, yeah. So that's um, pretty loud, though. It's pretty, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's that example. Um, okay, Gemini. Okay, so- did you have an example? I did so um it's just a really quick one I could rattle off so I'm thinking of uh Francois uh um the wife of Michelle Gauquelin who you know they famously collaborated on the project that they did to statistically prove astrology what's interesting is that she has Mercury retrograde on the ascendant in Gemini um and she was actually a statistician and um, skeptic. And so what's interesting is that she collaborated, you know, with her husband to basically find a statistical basis for astrology. I mean, some of it was questionable. And I guess they tried to, I know they tried to like 
push this in you know scientific circles but you know like i don't think it was taken seriously obviously and so yeah so that's that's just like one example i had i think i used her for the gemini um deccans episode yeah she I think does have her. some yeah yeah she does have some very strong gemini placements mm-hmm. yeah um my gemini example is edward snowden <laughs> um who as we all know now was he was a subcontractor he was yeah he was a subcontractor with the nsa and is was a whistleblower who leaked some nsa documents because of ethical concerns around global surveillance um he has mercury sun mars and the north node in gemini opposing uranus and he you know one a former coworker called him like a genius among geniuses like he was just known mm-hmm. to be just really really brilliant he is known to be brilliant um but when those documents leak like those leaked documents were first published he was in a sixth house a scorpion a scorpio perfection year which mm-hmm. you know work would have activated all that stuff around work um and mars his lord of the year mars is transiting his first house applying to that natal mercury <laughs> wow um and, you know, as we know now, I mean, he's still, to my knowledge, he's still, um, he's still exiled in Russia, right? Um, I'm not sure, actually. I think he, no. Is he? I know. I don't I'm know. Like, I don't know. I, I I'm really like almost know. positive he is still, yeah, I'm, I'm almost positive he's still in Russia. And, um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, I don't have any examples for cancer. I feel like all my examples are like later, later. in the zodiac. Yeah. You do have a Leo one that I'm excited to hear about. I do. <laughs> my cancer example is Margot Robbie. She's a Margot Robbie. She's the actress. She's an actress from Australia who has her Mercury in this first second of Cancer. It's um, combust. Um, super, you know. Again, so many like people have a combust Mercury because Mercury just spends so much time next to the sun. Um, she also has Jupiter, like this exalted Jupiter there, and they're all ruled by her fifth house Scorpio moon. But I think it's really funny that she's known for playing these characters who go off the deep end. Um, but the most famous <laughs> one being Harley Quinn, who is very, very mercurial. <laughs> yeah. um, and Suicide Squad came out during her third house Virgo year, which would have activate, again activated this like Mercury in its joy. And Mercury was transiting Virgo during that release. Um, the other character I was thinking of that she's known for playing is she played Tanya Harding, who, you oh, know, um, you know, yeah, figure skater who um, was found guilty of like conspiracy to um, physically assault another figure skater, Nancy Kerrigan. And the I I have I haven't watched the film myself, but I know that um, you know the screenwriter and the director like they've they they framed it to be like a dark comedy, which is you know it's, again mm-hmm. it's dark. It's not something you'd normally think is funny, but yeah, it's a dark comedy um, that really wanted to try to focus more on like why Tanya Harding is the way she is, not necessarily focusing too much on whether she was like really guilty or not. But mm. um, and others, you know, have also pointed out that you know here is a woman who was rejected by the skating world for not being that really effeminate. Um, 
archetype she was described as being tomboyish and low class like in a world where you know very very feminine wealthy women can really really dominate Mm -hmm. um but yeah i thought that you know her playing these kinds of characters to me just like was really fitting yeah no that that feels pretty i don't know it feels pretty apt um Okay, so my example for Leo is um, George W. Bush, um, America's favorite war criminal, um, 43rd president of the U.S. So he has Mercury conjunct the ascendant, ruling his 11th and second house. And so, like, obviously, I mentioned this in the Leo Deccans episode, but, like, dude has a history of, like, having, like, certain groups and people in places of influence and power like come through for him in clutch okay because think about the um i believe there was a mercury retrograde around that time in 2000 when the uh presidential election was held and there were i believe 61,000 ballots that were not counted in florida and so the gore campaign filed to have the ballots counted in the courts and there was this battle that went to the supreme court And so um, what's interesting is that three of the justices who are now sitting on the um, Supreme Court, um, one of them is one of Bush's appointees, two of them are Trump appointees, were actually lawyers in this case during the time. (laughs) Interesting. Um, It like trying to argue in favor of, you know, Bush that, you know, there should be a stay held on... um, you know, um, the order to count these ballots because there was some weird rule where it's like they don't, counting these ballots would make the um, election inaccurate. And it was revealed later that if they had counted all the ballots in the state again, Gore probably would have won the election instead of Bush. So he basically was like kind of handed the presidency, you know, by the finessing of like people in his network um some of which who later benefited from being appointed onto the supreme court (laughs) 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 or you know people who were um like either by him or um i think uh two of the people whose names were floating around around the case did go on to be bush appointees to the court so i think that's um, really interesting (laughs) Also, before this, um, he he was involved in the energy, you know, like oil and gas world. And so he had a company, right, that he, um, you know, started up. But um, there were issues back in like the late 70s, like with all of the crises going on in countries that produce oil and, you know, rising oil prices and making it hard for him to sustain you know, having an oil company. So he would sell the company or have mergers with the company. And there was a particular um, one where he, I think this was during his second house, third house perfection year transition where, you know, he would have been in the Mercury year first, but because he has um, Mercury and Leo, um, it's three signs away from Gemini, which is the 11th house. So whenever he goes into the third house perfection year, the 11th house meets its Lord. And that's like income earned from career and things like that. But also like having 
becoming elevated within a group just because you know the 11th house ruler is in the first like he literally negotiate he basically negotiated a merger and sold his company um to another company on the grounds that he would become ceo basically so it's like i sold you the company but i'm still in charge right and then finally like with this said company that he's been kind of like buying and selling with other people so in the late i think it was like the late 80s this was like when his while his dad is president mind you um or his dad had been president so around this time when he was like getting elected um through somebody he knew he found out that um the texas rangers baseball franchise was gonna sell Mm -hmm. to somebody and so bush really wanted to um basically own part of the franchise and so he got a group of his friends like literally the ruler of the 11th and the second coming together to buy shares in the texas rangers and (laughs) um what was interesting is that in order to pay for in order so he took out a loan in order to make this happen and what he did was he sold the shares in his energy company to pay off that loan that he used to buy shares in the texas rangers interestingly um, later that year, um, the company that he, you know, was on the like executive board of and had shares in started um, reporting major losses. And so he was accused of um, insider trading. <laughs> and what's interesting is that the SEC at the time said that there was no evidence that he um you know, was involved in insider trading because it seemed like he wanted to sell the shares anyway. Mm-hmm. But some people pointed out that, like, he had a lot of allies sitting on the SEC. Like, one of his good friends was on it. A lot of his father's appointees were on it. You know what I mean? And so it just kind of worked out for him. And, yeah, I don't know. I, I felt like that was particularly um, loud. So I, I think that was one way in which like a planetary joy can come through constructively for yes. um, somebody. Um, in this case, Mercury is technically out of sect because it's not morning rising. It's um, it's going to set after the sun. So I find it interesting that Mercury still played out that constructively for him. Yeah, no, that is, that's such a good example. I, I think there's other things we could look at in his chart in terms of why that Mercury has been so constructive, Mm. even though it's out of sect, like the fact that Venus is co-present. Really wild to me that his Mercury is almost exactly conjoined to his Pluto. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing, I may, I wonder if we'll come up again as an example, but he also has his moon in its joy and Saturn in its joy. Yeah, <laughs> and you guys will find out that I have a strong theory that regardless of essential dignity, um, Saturn in the 12th can kind of be the evading accountability <laughs> planet in yes. joy. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes. That'll be funny because that will like kind of like be the bookend to our joy series. We're gonna start mm-hmm. with this all this Mercury stuff around accountability and end with even more around accountability <laughs> with Saturn. Yes, <laughs> oh god. But it makes sense, right? Even if when you do look purely at the joys, like yeah, Mer- like Mercury Joy is in the first house, but I think it's just like you can't especially when you are thinking about like the angular triads and stuff and the triplicity connection, like you can't ignore Mercury and like Saturn's like connections to Mm -hmm. each other, even in this scheme. 
Um, so it makes sense to me. Like it, it, this kept coming up in examples, including even just this one that the 12th house and the first house kept coming up um, with a lot of these folks, but uh, that was a good one. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh gosh. Do you have any other Leo ones? I do not have any other Leo ones. No. <laughs> My Virgo one is um, so Steve Wozniak, the co-founder of Apple, has his Mercury here. So this is a Mercury that's um, in domicile and exalted, and he started developing Apple when he was twenty-five. Like, can you freaking imagine? Wow. <laughs> like, um, which obviously later became the world's largest IT company, and he's listed as the sole inventor for Apple patents. He's an engineer. And his um, Mercury has a really close conjunction with Saturn, which does add some challenges, but that is his malefic um, of sect. So I found them to be like, they seem like they've been surrounded by challenges. Out of all my examples, he's probably like one of the least controversial ones. He, um, he, what do you call it? He, what, he did end up leaving Apple a long while back. I mean, this is even before I was born. He left Apple in 1985, which was a 12th house Leo year for him. Like, again, like the Leo, the 12th house stuff just coming up again. Um, and the reasons why he left, I thought, were just really just first housey. Like, he just felt like it was like Apple was hindering who he wanted to be. And he felt like he just, he was just really missing the engineering side of his work not and you know the more once he started rising up as like a co-founder right like it just became all about the managerial side of running a business mm -hmm. and so it just sounded like he like had really really missed that um you know he he co-founded apple with his friend steve jobs and this happened in a second house libra perfection year where he has his natal venus in cancer um or, or sorry, he has his natal Venus in Cancer in the 11th house. So that would have mm -hmm. been his like Lord of the Year. Um, and yeah, Venus was at the time like transiting Pisces in his seventh house of close relationships, which shows why, you know, he had co-founded this with one of his really good friends, Steve Jobs. But it was also opposing his natal Mercury. And so I think it's funny that he left at the end of the day because he just felt like he just was like really had lost himself in the whole process. Mm -hmm. Yeah no that yeah. feels kind of loud like um i like the fact that this is um an example with somebody who has um mercury in that like sort of exaltation zone where it like lives but like also ruling the ascendant like my only other example for virgo is actually the astrologer and polymath um abdul al-biruni um, though, you know, everybody likes to ignore that he was an astrologer and contributed to astrology. Uh, they focused on the <laughs> astronomy part. Like he was obviously known as like a major mathematician and historian. And I think of the fact that, you know, his chart ruler is that Mercury conjunct the North Node in the last decan of Virgo. And I think of the fact that he was very interested in documenting the history of India and like, you know, Indian culture. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. I just feel like him documenting histories of cultures feels very loud to me. But also being like known or cemented as like um an like an important like pioneer in terms of like working with numbers and calculations. Um yeah. I love that. And you know, with with anyone who's like a Virgo rising that has Mercury in Virgo, right? It's like also ruling that 10th house. Mhm. Mm yeah. <laughs> 
All right. What's the next example? Oh, the uh, next one's yours, Libra. Libra. Yes. So my Libra example is Barbara Walters, who actually has Mercury conjunct Mars in the <laughs> third decan of Libra. So not only was she a major trailblazer for women in broadcasting and television, because like she was basically working with a lot of you know, irate male co-hosts and things like that, which I feel like kind of shows up with the, you know, Mercury-Mars conjunction going on in her first house. But also, like, she was known for giving sorts of controversial interviews where she would either ask people, you know, pointed or controversial questions, or she would ask them questions that people would be like, why are you asking this? Regardless of how people reacted, they were kind of giving her the engagement. (laughs) um she's the founder of like the one of the co-founders of the show the view which is all about giving coming back to this third decade of libra giving women especially from different generations and parts of life a platform where they literally talk about different topics in pop culture and world events that they are clearly not going to agree on but so many people watch it like Anybody who's, like, stayed at home during the pandemic, especially, like, when you couldn't go anywhere, like, and if you were, like, happened to be, like, watching, I don't remember which channel it's on, but, like, you watch it, like, what, at, like, noon, 11 o'clock in the morning, and it's on, and you see, like, a bunch of women talking about shit that they don't agree on, and so... (laughs) I, I, I just think it's really interesting, and it, you know, it generates a lot of buzz, and so, um, that... What's funny is that she actually got it started um, just before her um, ninth house perfection year started in uh, 1997. But before that, she was known to interview controversial figures and kind of like humanize them. I don't want to say humanize them because I'm not necessarily sure that was her objective, but like giving you a different view of like how they function and who they are. Mm -hmm. So during her first and 12th house years, so like, you know, the 12th house year would have activated Mercury as a time lord. And then, like, the first house perfection would have Mercury as a co-lord because it's in the perfected house. But, um, you know, in the year 1977 or around 1977, she managed to sit down um, the president of Egypt at the time, Anwar el-Sadat, and the prime minister of Israel at the time, Menachem Begin, um, to have a joint interview because at the time... Um, you know, in the 70s, there was a lot of conflict between Israel and other um, countries in the Middle East. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and this was a couple of years before um, um, President Carter would sit the two of them down for the Camp David Accords and like foster like a, like a ceasefire agreement between them. But, you know, this was a big deal because these were people on two sides of a conflict sitting down with her to have an interview at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, which I feel like is feeding into some of that, like, you know, Mercury conjunct Mars, like controversy, like inflammatory speech, asking pointed questions. Um, Also, like earlier in the same year, um, she actually created a television special about Fidel Castro. Um, And what's interesting is that like, you know, Mercury was her time lord during that period. So I thought I thought it was really interesting. And, you know, she's had the opportunity to sit down and explore the different sides of, you know, very controversial figures in history. Like she's interviewed so many like perceived terrorists, heads of state, like dictator type people. 
Yeah. And so it's it's really interesting that that's all on her rap sheet. But you know what? People t- tuned into it and like thought it was a big deal. Oh, for sure. And I I think this is a, such a fascinating example. It's such a good example. And it like like all these people who have agreed, you know, they don't, you don't have to agree to an interview with Barbara Walters. And yet I think all of these people, whether, the, you know, both all these controversial figures as well as these incredibly famous and powerful people, um, when they sit down with her, there must be some kind of like goal or I guess just this feeling that this person is gonna translate me to the world in a way that maybe will show a whole different side of me and be more yeah. favorable. <laughs> Not only that, but I remember reading parts of her bio on Wikipedia and how she had tried to get an interview with Katherine Hepburn for years, but like finally broke her down and managed to get an interview with her. And her saying it was one of probably one of her more um, memorable experiences interviewing people. So like, I'm surprised that a lot of these people would like sit down and willingly be dissected by her, like have their character dissected by her so that like they could get some sort of view of themselves across. Yeah. Yeah. It's just screams like this Mercury archetype that we've been discussing. I love this example. Yeah, especially because it's like a Mercury like Deccan, so mm-hmm. it's like really, really loud. Mm-hmm. I do think it's funny too that this Mercury is ruled and is applying my sextile to this Venus in Leo and the third Deccan of Leo because mm-hmm. that just yep. like in the eleventh house that just like that's the view that's the view right there. <laughs> yep, that's definitely the view. That is one hundred percent the view. It's great stuff. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh God! I, love I don't it. have any more Libra examples, but I do yeah. have two Scorpio examples. Yeah, um, go for it. The first one I'll do real quick is um, actually Sarah, the Duchess of York, who has her um, Mercury at nine degrees of Scorpio. Uh, it's like you know it would be in the quadrant twelfth, but like I use whole sign houses, so like it's technically in the first. Whatever. Um, it rules. It technically rules her midheaven in Virgo, but it also rules the eleventh whole sign house and the eighth whole sign house. And something that I've noticed is that if you look at certain parts of her bio, like because she's rubbed elbows against like <clears throat> pretty famous people, um, she has had like the ability to have like people pay off her debts and things like that. And I'm thinking about a lot of the controversy with like, you know, her being married to Andrew and like, um, and like, you know, her role in like the whole Epstein thing. Cause like, I can't remember if like the way that Epstein got to know Andrew was because of her or something like that. But like she's managed to make friends that have helped her financial interest. And usually that, translates to helping her deal with her debts and things like that um my other example is um gianni versace who has his um ascendant conjoined to mercury at 21 degrees scorpio so in that third decan so like the i feel like the third decan of all the water signs has this weird like indulgent um, the perils of excess quality. Yes. <laughs> and I feel like that comes across like when you think about Gianni Versace and his lifestyle. Um, so one thing that I thought was interesting is that, you know, he was credited with promoting like the supermodel culture and maybe some of the early 
elements of influencer culture that we're familiar with now because until he was doing it like the concept of the fashion show that people sit at so that you know um you can showcase your art like that was like not as big a thing because what he would do is that he would strategically employ celebrities um mm-hmm. and discover models who would become like the embodiment of his um you know art and like a lot of it was supposed to be really um really sexy and really um he was really drawing on certain elements of like you know the historical nature of like his roots and like the part of Italy that he's from because there's a lot of Greco-Roman influence in that region of Italy that he's from um and I think of like the decadence and debauchery with which like his designs are described and so like it's been said that he had this rivalry with uh, Giorgio Armani and it's said that while you know Armani was meant to dress the wife um Versace was meant to dress the mistress it's supposed to be enticing <laughs> something you can't really have like um things like that but on top of that like I think just because it's like the ruler of the eighth house conjunct um you know conjunct the ascendant like he's most like you know well known and probably immortalized to some extent when you think about his legacy because you know the eighth house does have connotations of legacy um because he was you know brutally murdered by somebody who was like obsessed with him and had all these fantasies about him um and their closeness and so i think that you know the placement of his mercury kind of speaks to some of that um do have you do you know what the versace logo is yes it's it's freaking medusa it's her head. yeah it's algal hello i know it's algal <laughs> oh, which is weird. funny because i think uh i'm pretty sure donatella has something in late taurus i can't remember what it is i don't know if it's her ascendant oh my Let me god check actually and stop being a weirdo i love that listen i love that logo it's everything (laughs) oh i love it too i mean i just thought of it too even as you were describing that okay if armani is the is dressing the wife then um then or how did he say oh yeah armani Armani dresses the wife versace Versace dresses dresses the mistress mistress. (sighs) yeah for some reason that for, for every reason that logo just like immediately popped in my head even though um yeah 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 no it's 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 crazy stuff but um yeah no i just think of like you know also the mystery and the drama surrounding his um murder um even though they like know who did it it's just like really trying to delve into the um understanding of why and doesn't he have i can't remember because i'm not looking at his chart right now but like i think he has neptune in the first house as well and i know his killer had this weird like inflation of what their relationship was and maybe had like the motivation in um you know um attacking um gianni was surrounded around like him not fulfilling that sort of expectation so like this not, i can't have you no one yeah can or something not the first house but the 12th house he has neptune and libra um oh, but he does okay. he does have chiron jupiter venus retrograde and mercury all in scorpio in that first house yeah it's 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 kind of wild um yeah yeah no those are my scorpio examples yeah my sag example is it's pretty quick but margaret cho the stand-up comedian 
um, has her Mercury here in Sag. So this is a Mercury that's in detriment. It's also a combust, just like many of the other examples, because again, it's Mercury. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it joys here in the first house. And, you know, Margaret Cho has done pretty well for herself in comedy, which, of course, is a very mercurial thing, as we talked about when we were talking about the significations of Mercury. Um, but her work also, like, she she is someone who really did not lean into the conventional, right? Like, she knows that, she, like, especially when she got, like, really started to get big, like, there really weren't very many women comedians, and there definitely mm -hmm. weren't very many Asian-American comedians or queer comedians. And mm -hmm. so and she was she is all of those things. So she um, it, she just kind of leaned into it like she never has ever steered away in her comedy around like kind of these bigger picture sag things like politics and identity. Um, she had a show called All American Girl that unfortunately like didn't like last too long, but it was mm -hmm. um, it was like the very first like Asian American American sitcom um and it really has paid like all the ones that have come up since then like fresh off the boat and some of these other shows like really credit her for being able to lead the way in that yeah i have another um mercury in the first house example and that's Brene brown so she's like a sociologist at um i think she's still at the university of houston if i remember correctly and you know she has like all of these great like um you know, like self-help books and things like that. And I think it's interesting that she has Mercury in that second decan of um, Sagittarius because, you know, it has kind of those connotations of like really wanting to help people. Like it's kind of, I don't know, I find, I don't know about you, but like I find that like that middle decan of Sagittarius kind of has low-key like, not like life coach energy, but like this energy of like trying to give back to people and trying oh, to- Oh, for sure. Um, make people like it's like the person like i remember one of the images we talked about was like you know a woman holding lots of treasure right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you know I i'm thinking about the fact that in her chart she has mercury you know squaring like that uranus pluto conjunction on her midheaven and you know it's in a t-square with like that uranus pluto conjunction and her um chiron in the fourth but also saturn is like technically participating as well and you know this is someone who struggled with like addiction and you know not the best um you know interpersonal relationships and it's interesting because she's become like sort of this guru for a lot of um famous people or like powerful people in terms of like um self-empowerment and things like that so i'm thinking of like that lunar element of um that middle decan of sag and like trying to push yourself to like get through like maybe some of your darkest times because you know there's like that sort of light at the end of the tunnel and like that hope that you can get to like you know the treasure that you know the person's like kind of enticing you with right and so yeah I think some of that shows up in also she's very like what's interesting is she's very like blunt about some of the things she went through and how that informs like her motivation to become like a social worker and to um, really study like both how people, um, you know, interact, but also like, you know, certain elements of like personal and like psychology, like within yourself. Mm -hmm. I, 
I, this is yeah I'm, I'm glad you brought this one up i have read Brene brown's books i remember when she first when i started to hear her name a lot um even including in astro twitter circles like i was skeptical at first then even after i read her books and liked them when i found out she had a netflix series that like or a netflix special that had come up I was skeptical again, too, because I actually had not heard her speak at this point. And I was just mm. like, I don't want this to be some, like, Gwyneth Paltrow white woman shit, you know? Like, I don't know if I want that kind of self-help in my life. And then I ended up watching it. And I thought she was fucking hilarious. Like, it was so... Mm-hmm. She is so Sag Mercury in the first house. Like, yes. she's so personable. And she's not... If She obviously still has those same elements that you see in these self-help guru- gurus. But very very different too at the same time it's refreshing yeah it's like i've been through this shit and like i'm gonna be very like um like there, there's a bluntness like probably because you know she has all these like malefics aspect like i'd consider uranus and pluto malefic yes. aspecting her mercury <laughs> like she like she's very empowering but she does not mince words when it comes to like her experiences and what's funny is that like when I first heard her talk like I was actually watching a TED talk she was giving like for some reason like um my partner like he had um he had like these videos playing like we were on vacation or something and like it was just all these like psychology related TED talks and like for some reason in the playlist like a bunch of hers came on and when she would describe herself I was like she's weirdly mercurial and I was like she has to have a Virgo moon and she has to have a prominent Mercury so I looked up her chart and I was like yes I knew it (laughs) it. (laughs) like yes (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i um (laughs) yeah definitely all of those things she um she got i think really famous because of that ted talk and one thing that really stands out to me you know she's got mercury in detriment right and Mm -hmm. um, i've I've met like people and clients at sag mercury who like get kind of nervous about their public speaking skills and one of the things that stands out to me about her is when she goes into these like stories where she's sharing like some kind of vulnerable it, um you know situation or just a straight up like fuck up it, like a lot of her examples are around her public speaking gigs and just her struggles with it yeah yeah and like what's funny is that i love how she describes herself as a storyteller first yeah. and foremost like yeah. i feel like that's peak mercury and you know what it's in sagittarius it's in its own terms and yeah. like i i really find that that's very loud and i find that you know i've had a lot of clients with I've had more Pisces Mercury clients actually than Sag, but I always get like those Pisces Mercury clients who have um, Mercury in its terms. And I find that a lot of them are really good at um, storytelling as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. All right. You have the cap example. I don't have any. Okay. So my cap example is actually Jonah Hill. Um, which is funny because I never would have thought that he was cap rising like (laughs) he just doesn't I don't know he just doesn't have Capricorn energy I think that's also just because he's like a comedian Mm, which doesn't like help because like I don't think of comedians when I think of um, Capricorn not that Capricorns aren't funny but like I feel like the kind of brand of humor that Jonah Hill has is more mm, Gemini like but then again um 
wait i need to see if he's a sagittarius i can't remember if he's a Sagittarius. he is he is okay it's, that's probably exactly why. conjoined in neptune <laughs> okay see that okay yeah that's probably why because i'm like uh if you said sag or gemini i'd believe you but what oh my god but like mercury is like really close to his ascendant so like he's pretty much embodying um the principles of hold on where is it i had that chart like two seconds ago i'm mad sorry (laughs) i have too many tabs open that is my my lifelong struggle okay like i had this tab open and like okay we're good. So he has Mercury on the Ascendant in that middle decan of um, Capricorn. And I would say that that's like the artisan decan of Capricorn. And so what's interesting to me is how, um, you know, Mercury rules his ninth house. And like, he's somebody who's always wanted to, I guess, be like a like a screenwriter or like a performer. And I feel like how this is where like that dilemma of really like being your true self kind of comes about. Because if you look at his acting history, like while he's done well in um, comedy, which, you know, I could feel is like a feature of Mercury. um, (laughs) He, he has done a few like more serious roles and he's gotten some um, Oscar nods for them. Um, Mm -hmm. I think one of them was the wolf on wall street and um fuck there was another one that like he really got like you know serious nods for and so i think there's elements of his career where he struggled between like wanting to be typecast in like a certain role as like a comedian versus you know wanting to express himself more as a screenwriter and the thing is like he um when he wrote his script uh mid 90s it actually got some pretty good um reception you know, like, so the things that he wrote. And so I think one dilemma he has is like the struggle to be like in front of the camera or like, you know, behind the scenes. Like, so the thing is, it's like what got him his start anyway was writing screenplays and getting well-known on like the New York, like comedy scene and like the New York performing scene and everything. And I think some of that speaks to the fact that, you know, Mercury is also like, it's Lord of the Ninth. But, you know, it's sextiling that Venus, which is ruler of the 10th whole sign house and the 5th house. And then, you know, he's got the chart ruler conjunct the Venus, which is also on the midheaven and the 11th. So, like, you know, he's around the right people to do the right things. But I think there's just that struggle to figure out, you know, whether he should be, like, a screenwriter, a director, or, like, you know, the actual actor. Or should he do something a little more serious or um, something that's, like, more funny? Because if you look at, like, his um i would argue his venus um venus saturn in scorpio especially has to do with like him taking on like something a little more serious mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. versus like the mercury on the ascendant wanting to do something a little lighter even though it is in capricorn i mean i don't know like i just I thought f- it was interesting i think he has a lot of potential to like branch out into more because like i when i when i and i I think you're right on that cap rising like it is initially not i don't think what a lot of people would think but it does make sense the more i I look at it because compared to other comedians he's actually really been able to make this shift from 
these you know when he did like super bad right like those these high school like does this really just kind of like lowbrow comedy i mean the thing is like his mercury in the first house was activated because he was in that first house year yeah when he got that role but like look even at the comedy the comedic roles that he has now like his character has he doesn't play those kind of characters anymore like he plays like he sophisticated now exactly like don't look up like of course he still plays it's like a little bit you know it's like he's a chief of staff i mean he's a chief of staff because his mom meryl street put him there but he still plays a little bit of that dumb character because it's comedy but he's not like uh like let's say look at it look at his co-star michael Sarah, who's just gonna forever be typecast as a teenage boy <laughs> even though yeah. he's like what in his 30s now yeah yeah. for sure yeah no i think he's and i think he's like straddling the lines between something a little more serious and also like something um like a more sophisticated versus like lowbrow comedy um and I then know. i'm thinking of like mercury ruling the sixth house for some reason i associate the police with the sixth house and i think of like his yeah. role with uh channing tatum in 21 jump street like yes for some reason i i can't remember exactly like where he was in his perfection scheme when that came out but like that's that's like a funny example I i'm think just of. bummed there is no chart for channing tatum because i want to see uh, the synastry between these two like why do they keep ending up in movies together? all i know is channing tatum if i remember correctly he's a taurus son that's all i know oh about yeah him. for sure i i can spot Taurus. like if there's any sign you know in terms, as far as physical characteristics go i could spot a taurus man like miles away he is definitely a taurus man <laughs> Hold on, I have to look this up because oh I swear I feel like I had seen his chart, Channing Tatum's chart before, but I wonder if they're together a lot because um, I'm thinking so. Channing Tatum does have like his Venus is like near um, um, Jonah Hill's North Node. Um, and there's probably some other like weird sinistry things, but like I wish we had a rising sign. And the thing is, we know he's into astrology. He like literally (gasps) made an ad for the pattern. Like, yes, I remember that video. (laughs) He's like an investor in the pattern. Like, oh my god, drop the chart already. Channing Tatum, if you listen to this, one, thank you for listening, but two, please give us your birth time. Give us your birth time. Um, I don't have any more cap examples. Um, I have an Aquarius example. So um, Janis Joplin is my Aquarius example. She is a famous singer and songwriter and unfortunately also a member of the 27 Club because she um, unfortunately um, died of a heroin overdose at 27. So she has Mercury retrograde ruling her fifth house and her eighth house. And she also has Venus in the South Node here in Aquarius. Um, They all make a grand trine with Saturn and Uranus in Gemini in the fifth house. And then Neptune and Libra in the ninth house. So um, I think this is actually a good example of how trines aren't always like the best thing either. And this is coming from someone who also has a grand trine in my chart. But she's, you know, just as much as she's known for just really, really amazing music, she really was also known for her... um, almost like a like a like many year battle with drugs especially heroin and she really grappled and struggled with like how can i possibly pursue 
a musical career without drugs. Like she was speaking with like a, like it sounded like a therapist um, mm. about this very issue. And the therapist, you know, the therapist just couldn't, he was like, I, you can pursue music without drugs. Like, what are you talking about? But she, um, she, yeah, she really, really struggled with that. She feared like what her life would be like without music and drugs like she really Mm. she grew up in texas and she just didn't want to be like every other wife and mother in texas Mm. and um and so she constantly felt herself just getting drawn to this and it made me and and unfortunately she really she she passed when she was so young but it made me think a lot about like at the post-colonial astrology book actually talks a lot about how um Mercury it was it, it was a section on Mercury and Hermeticism as well as just these like Western quote-unquote like thinkers and scholars like you know back in the day would really associate like the unknown and you know the source of like their inspirations from like Oriental like Orientalism and just teachings mm-hmm. from the East and she was saying the modern um, version of that now is like these like tech bros and developers in Silicon Valley who go on acid trips to like develop and stuff but um yeah. she was connecting mercury she was connecting mercury with that which i thought was really interesting yeah no that that feels um pretty pretty loud to me um yeah yeah i don't yeah. have any aquarius examples um i have only i have one pisces example do you have any pisces examples i have one but like i don't know exactly how to place like his mercury just because he okay so this person his name is renato dolbeco um anybody who works in a lab knows that there are a lot of um solutions in tissue culture named after this guy because he won the 1975 nobel prize in physiology and medicine and a lot of his work was related to um, the incorporation of virus um, derived genes into um, a host cell so that you can change the phenotype of certain cells to make them cancerous. And so this was like the basis to generate like certain types of cell lines so that you can um, basically use them to do all sorts of things in the lab and research all sorts of stuff. So it's just really interesting. And I think some of the stuff about his work has implications for viruses potentially causing cancer. I mean, I don't know how well this bears out in like nature, but like it's like one demonstration of um, cancers potentially having a viral origin, Um, even though that's not necessarily the purpose of him getting the prize. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah i um i've never heard of him but i'm looking at his chart now and this is like a lot of pisces he's got his sun venus chiron the north node and mercury in the ascendant yeah pisces. so what's interesting is that um i know that like you know he was you know uh you know in the prime of his adulthood during world war ii basically and there was a time where he had to, um, you know, move a lot just because of what was going on. And, you know, this was a time where he, you know, was trying to become a doctor. Ironically, he really wanted to be like a physicist or a mathematician, but like instead he gave that up to study medicine. And he was trying to, um, he formed some important partnerships, like while he was trying to um, um, finish his um 
degrees in um, medicine, particularly anatomy and pathology. And it was through these important mentorships that he was able to um, move to the United States and continue his career in the biosciences. And I feel like some of that is captured by that um, Mercury in the first house um, being squared by Pluto. Um, Yeah. 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 I could totally see that. Um, No, it's, it's interesting that looks so it's all ruled by this like fourth or this, I'm sorry, this Jupiter in the 12th house in Aquarius. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you, when you kind of just look at his chart, like there isn't one final dispositor, but Mercury very much get kind of, it kind of comes back, like it loops back to Mercury. It does. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my this is my last example but my Pisces example is and I've used him before <laughs> I'm probably in a Pisces episode or something else um, is Alexander Graham Bell so he has his Mercury in the third decan of Pisces and he's controversially controversially known as the inventor of the telephone um, this is a Mercury again it's a Mercury in its detriment and fall and he was accused even during his lifetime as well as like to this day of stealing the telephone from another mm-hmm. engineer Elisha Gray and it was literally a race to the patent office that Alexander Graham Bell won um, but it wasn't even just that they it's not that it's not that they independently invented the telephone and then they both are just racing to the patent office. It's very likely that he actually really stole the design from Elisha Gray. Mm. Um, and there even was controversy about who even arrived at the patent office first. But in either way, Bell won out. Um, and it, though it's still very controversial and unclear to this day who really, really invented it. But at the end of the day, people know his name way more than they know Elisha Gray. And he was in a sixth house Leo perfection year when he got this patent. And so his Lord of the year was the sun and it was, it was transiting um, Pisces um, right on that Mercury, along with Mercury, Mercury and the sun were transiting through Pisces at the time. So he got his patent just very shortly after his birthday um, while the sun was conjoined to his ascendant. I love how um, basically there's kind of that, um, that deceptive element coming through especially with the sneaky water mercury yes <laughs> yeah it's this so is like sneaky. shady uh so yes yes so sneaky and shady but um and this is like it's like the george w bush example this is one of like someone who got really got away with it yeah i mean this is like just to like clarify for everybody so like hopefully through these examples you guys could see some themes people who have like you know weirdly good ways of telling stories um people who have the ability to learn things quickly or develop things quickly or you know really um discover important things and convey them to people in ways that like you know, encourage them to play and experiment a little more with, um, you know, the world kind of, um, people who are able to, you know, get away with murder, basically, um, just on technicalities, thinking about that element of mercury. (laughs) Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I did, I did really enjoy this. I thought the themes are just like really, really loud to me. Um, I think 
Um, yeah, I think on top of that, I think whether you're a like scientist or a mathematician or like a hermeticist or both or none of those things, I think exp this exploration of the first house and Mercury joining here for me, like I think one of my takeaways is that um, we're all trying to find our truth, but I think like the more we can also accept that we'll probably never ever know anything either. Um, and that truth is just going to be constantly changing, I think. Yeah. yeah. And I think that, you know, Mercury encourages us kind of like the magician to take this raw, untapped potential that we don't necessarily know what it is and still try to shape it and give it shape and form and meaning anyway. Like, yeah. that's definitely what I think. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Anything else? Um. No, I'm just really excited to talk about the moon next. Me too. Yes, I hope you all are excited too. I also am very like pleasantly surprised at how fast. I thought this was going to be a three-hour episode because we were talking both about just what the joys mean as well as Mercury. But in true Mercury fashion, we sped through it. <laughs> yeah, no. I, I, I just have a feeling that some episodes are going to be longer and heavier than others <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right thanks mo thanks everyone thanks guys see mm -hmm. ya bye <laughs>